Whatever you're currently doing, I can assure you that today's episode is going to captivate you. I exclusively sat down with the grandfather, the inventor of the barcode, like the barcode, the barcode that you see on every single product um, that you shop for. And we had a conversation about how the barcode came to be, how they sold it, how they put it in the public domain, and we're just going to dig in. So um, leave everything you're doing and stick around. Hey, welcome to this episode of the podcast with me, Pierre Sube. Um, this podcast has no affiliation with everything that I do with Entrepreneur Magazine, my affiliation with Forbes 30 Under 30, my investments, the companies and projects I'm involved with. This is completely separate and it's for entertainment purposes only. So I'm required to say that it's not for educational purposes, but it kind of is. Just don't take anything I say seriously and fact check me, but don't hold me on it because we're not, this is not, this is not National Geographic. This is not Netflix. We're just having fun and we're exploring the world together. We're asking these questions. Today's episode obviously means so much to me because we're starting something new that I've always wanted to do. Um, Hold on a second. Let me put my phone on. Do not disturb. I thought I did this. So today's episode is really important to me because it's a start of something new. Um, I think it's really important for everyone, including yourself, to always ask questions. And for me, I'm really curious about a lot of different things. And I have the privilege of being able to speak to some really cool people. And so we're working on putting this together for you in this format. Um, And today we are talking about something that both you and I touched this week. And no, it's not what you think. We're speaking barcodes. You see, barcodes surround us everywhere. Not only in the supermarkets, um, but everywhere. They're in grocery stores. They're on Mars. They're in the deepest point on Earth. They're everywhere. Um, And I remember barcodes for as far as I've lived. Like, I remember barcodes since forever. They're such an important part of our lives, yet we somehow... And by the way, barcodes by nature are kind of ugly in the sense of, you know, they're just black and white strips. Um, But they've become such an incredible technology that they just faded. Like, we don't even recognize them anymore. Um as we would have recognized them if they were just born today. But the cool thing about barcodes is that my personal story with them, I loved barcodes as a child. My dad to this day um, is like in the grocery world. He has like these small, um, how do you call that? Not a deli, but he has these small grocery stores, uh, bodega, I think. I don't know. Anyways, he he's in that business. And I that my first job was actually one of my first jobs I was just like 13 and it wasn't a job because I was told to, it was a job because I wanted to, but I would go in and I would, um, help him with a lot of, like a lot of packaging and boxing, filling the fridges. But point of the story is I was fascinated by barcodes and I always wanted to know how they work. So one of the things I purchased when I was really young, um, is a barcode scanner And I would just love to scan them for fun. I just couldn't understand how we don't have at the time. And this was only like 2012. 
how we don't have amazing cameras that can autofocus, true autofocus, how we don't have amazing phones, but yet somehow we magically have this scanner that's not that expensive. You can point it in any angle at any time of the day and it would somehow just scan a barcode. Like that idea to me was so bizarre in so many ways. I can't even explain it to you. The cool thing about it is um, how does it work and and why did it exist for so many years? So anyways, I went into this like crazy research hole, um, rabbit hole, and we did all this research and I was able to have a conversation with like the father inventor of the barcode. And you know how whenever something is invented, everyone claims to have invented it, blah, blah, blah. There's so many names that you'll see for like different technologies that who actually invented it. But this person was the person that really put in all the work, put in the teams together, dedicated a big part of his career to this. And he knows secrets that he ex exclusively told me uh, in our interview that you'll see later. Basically, you're telling me, like, when we look at the barcode, you led the team that invented the barcode, like the actual barcode. That's correct. Wow. It, it's so game changing. I'll tell you why. Um, I grew up my entire life and my father owned grocery stores. I think I was like 14. I made him purchase a barcode scanner for me. And it was USB, so I was connected to my uh, computer. And I would scan random things, and it wouldn't really input into any software because it was just making the sound and scanning. And I found so much joy in that. I, I can't explain it to you. It, it's like what people now feel when they try AI and all these technologies that are new to them. To me, that was to this day the most magical moment when I could just scan something, and it would just make that beeping sound. Uh, I really had a fascination with it. And I had a fascination because I couldn't understand it. I had a fascination because he was, we grew up in a Caribbean island called Curacao. And small grocery stores don't necessarily have all the technology to use a POS system. This is a really personal story for me because I've had fascination with barcodes and I've, I've seen them in action. And one of the very first things I want to ask you is, did you know what it was going to do to the world? Or did it just feel like another thing that you're developing as a product? Did you know, did, it, did you feel that it's going to change the entire world we live in? Yeah, I, I think at the point in time where we got selected as the international standard, then we began to feel, oh God, my God, this is really going to hit. Before that, you know, we were worried, were we going to be able to make it work? Uh, you know, I mean, we could make it work, but could we implement it? You know, I mean, could we get it printed on all the merchandise? You know, I mean, and what about the error rates and, and so on and so forth? You know, there, there was a code that was selected, before, that was not selected, but that was uh, invented before ours, the bullseye code. And, uh, but it took up a lot of space. And uh, it was easy to scan because uh, you didn't have to orient it to pull it across the check stand. Uh, whereas the bars, you don't have to do that either, but that's trickier with bars because if you have concentric circles, then one line of a scanner is all you need and it'll eventually go through the middle. And it doesn't matter how it's oriented, it'll be the same. But in an inexpensive printer, like your small grocery store that you talked about, 
or at the beginning, all grocery stores for the first five years, all grocery stores, they, you had to have an inexpensive, cheap little printer. And the printer, for example, would often have too much ink in it or too little ink. If it had too much ink, the bars would be too fat and the spaces then became much slower. What I truly wanted to know is why did we need to invent the barcode? So what I didn't know at first is that one of the first original barcodes was actually like a like a circular barcode of some sort, um, which actually in theory sounds really good. It's almost like a QR code, but it's in a circle way. So it was designed that you can scan it from any angle and it would work. The problem is when barcodes were originally invented, they were supposed to help society by being able to identify something, right? It, I think um, the the true purpose of a barcode is to identify something quickly. You have thousands of products, you have tens of thousands of products in a grocery store, and you need to identify it right away at any setting, at any day, uh, time of the day, and stuff like that. So a circular barcode was one of the first inventions. I'll see if we can throw one here. But the problem is uh, the first barcode printers or the first printers or whatever, they their ink would leak a lot. And what that means is one small leakage in ink would ruin that whole barcode. Whereas the barcode that we know and left today was invented in a way after so many different trials and errors, even if it leaks at the end or even, a, even if one part of the line has leaked ink of some sort, it would still scan somewhere else, right? Because the way the barcode is formulated or designed is that even if a part of it is missing or ruined or damaged, you can still scan it. Because in order for a scanner to pick up the identification from a barcode, um, let's say this is a barcode, we don't need every single line to be scanned. We just need one thin line measuring the distance between each line and the, the width of each line to therefore give us a number. So when a scanner is scanning a barcode, it picks up a number that then is the identifier in the database. Does that make sense? Is that so complicated? Wait, I need a little break. So today I'm drinking uh, chamomile tea brought by my favorite mug by Al Fakhir, um, an adult only brand. So really cool people love them. Let's take a little quick sip. One second. back to the early days of your career give me the year give me the place and just let me know how was it that it led up for us to create the barcode i actually uh joined ibm in a an organization and i think it was the picking of the organization that really uh, i joined ibm in 1960 and uh it was the Advanced Systems Development Division, and it was a division that was in between research and uh, development. Uh, development was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and uh, research was uh, a, a small fraction of that. And this was a small fraction of research, but it was an organization that was asked to look into applications of computers, which IBM was selling at the time, that... Um, would add a lot of uh, opportunity uh, for sales of more machines, but that uh, just needed one or two things that were missing in order to fill in the opportunity to create that 
application to make that application work. And so in the next nine years, and I'll jump through that very quickly, the next nine years, I worked on all different kinds of technologies where we were looking for that kind of thing. Uh, primarily for me at the beginning, it was scanning. Uh, I did uh, scanning of uh, micro images on uh, very, very small surfaces like the head of a pin for the CIA, and yet big scanning for General Motors, uh, for uh, automobile uh, engineering drawings, and so on and so forth, and other things related to the human-machine interface. And then, nine years later, I was sitting in my office one day, and uh, an executive walked in and uh, said, hey, we would like you to pick out and start us in some new business, something we're not doing now. We don't want to go into oil exploration. That's too different. And uh, we don't want to shoot our own children. So you can't just redo another computer, but something peripheral to the computer industry. And uh, I think I got that opportunity perhaps because I was uh, going to the Stanford Grad School of Business at the time, majoring in marketing and so on and so forth. And uh, that was unique. And the other thing is, is that the president and CEO of IBM at the time, a guy named Frank Carey, he's a very famous guy from the past, meet its, uh, it couldn't keep its growth rate going at the same percentage with just computers. Computers weren't big enough, <laughs> he felt at the time. And uh, so he said to his guys, go buy a bunch of companies in Silicon Valley. And they said, no, 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 Frank, you don't seem to understand. Anybody you buy in Silicon Valley in the way of a small startup, they're all going to quit the next morning because they don't want white shirts and red ties and blue suits and black hmm. wingtip shoes and all that. Uh, and so he said, okay, well, I guess you're right. So then find somebody in IBM and paint a red line around them and let them operate differently, more like a startup. And... Uh, that was what they proposed to me, and uh, I was very fortunate to get that uh, opportunity. And so I looked at, it. well, first of all, I got a team. I got uh, a, a fellow, young fellow who was very good at uh, marketing and also had a good engineering background and an experienced, uh, much more experienced than I, a 25-year experienced IBM engineer who knew about everything from engineering to uh, mark to uh, manufacturing and so on. And so we looked at different opportunities, we looked at banking, we looked at uh, things like that. We ended up in point of sale and we picked point of sale because uh, there, there was a lot of information around about it. Uh, the, the industry themselves were languishing about the slow checkout lines and the, uh, problem of price marking and price remarking and so on. If you remember when you went shopping in those days, you had to reach to the back of the shelf to find a Campbell soup can, or if you did, you're allowed right. to get it cheaper because it had uh, the oldest price on it <laughs> and they were losing money at that. And reordering was a big problem as supermarkets were often out of it didn't have the, the, the right orders in. And IBM knew a lot about this because we had the back room computers in most of the big supermarkets of the day, in the Kroger and the Safeway and so on, and also in retail, in Macy's and Emporium and so on and so forth. So uh, he said, 
you know, would you, would you like to do this as a startup? And I said, yeah, you know, that's a great thing. So that's how I got started. And uh, we, we took off. And one of the reasons I, I was very familiar with NCR, National Cash Register, that they had 95% of the market. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, went to school there uh, in the shadow of National Cash Register's headquarters, and there are almost 10,000 employees. And, you know, it's for 100 years before that, they had cash registers, big old cast iron cash registers that, you know, you punched on a whole array keyboard, and they had six printers in them, and they weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds, but they weren't very adaptable. And that's what people were using in retailing. And uh, in some supermarkets, they were actually just using simple little adding machines. And uh, we thought, gee, if we could build a real little computer, this was a decade and a half before the PC. If we could build a little itty bitty computer, put it on a check stand. And uh, if we had some scanner, and as I said, I'd been working on scanners for years that could read it, uh, read some kind of an item identification thing, then uh, we could solve a lot of these problems. Okay, back to the barcode. So the invention of the barcode was really interesting because I went in thinking this is going to be an incredible invention that has, you know, it's, it's science and it's technology and it's early 1900s. Um, actually, let's get the exact date. I literally did the interview, but I'm not a historian. So let's... Let's do a quick Google search. So the barcode was invented in 1952. Um, so, okay, 1952, post-World War II, um, was a time when we obviously needed to identify things. So during my interview with Paul uh, for his upcoming book, The Barcode, how a team created one of the world's most ubiquitous, ubiquitous, whatever that word is, technologies, um, the crazy thing that I was really, you know, taken back by is that it wasn't just about the technology and it wasn't just about like, hey, let's create something that's going to change the world. A, they had to spend a ton of time to convince Microsoft to even fund their research and the team that Paul put together. Then they had to play this game of making it look like they made progress even when they didn't. And what that basically means is, they had to make it look like, um, you know, like we're going somewhere, but they needed to do that to get more funding to actually get somewhere. So it's, it's a really, really funky game. But basically they wanted, how do you, how do you come up with a camera that's able to read a code again at any angle, any lighting, any time of the day? Paul told me that they basically had to use laser. The funny thing about the timing of this invention is that it was post-World post War II when lasers were known to, you know, take down planes from the sky. So, and like cancerous and blah, blah, blah. So they had to work a lot to actually get the invention to become what it is. And then they worked really hard to convince people to actually use barcodes and use barcode scanners. Imagine like, imagine making an incredible iPhone 18 that's able to scan um like do a 3d print of a face or imagine imagine the iphone 18 you can like take a picture of your dog and then 3d print that picture i don't know if that's really technologically advanced but let's imagine it is 
And then instead of just being like, hey, guys, buy this phone, it's let's convince people to buy this phone because they're scared to buy this phone. Well, that's how it was for the barcode. And then 14 different companies were trying to invent codes for the Supermarket Institute. And, uh, you know, at the at the final meeting, uh, actually, uh, an executive of the company that was hired by the Supermarket Institute to pick the code, McKinsey, the big consulting company of the time, uh, they came out and told me that uh, they didn't think the uh, it, that the people in the selection committee could pick our code because IBM was too big, strong company, big blue. They'd be frowned upon socially, politically if they picked their code and so on. And I said, you know what? My team has come up with two little uh, improvements to the code. I'll tell you about them. And uh, even though I didn't have the authority to do this from IBM at the time, I figured, well, they'll go along with it. I said, I'll give you those and you can say you created your own code and we won't, we won't claim the rights to those two ideas. And he said, well, I don't know, but I'll try that idea. He turned around, walked back in the room. He came out about two hours later and said they bought it. And so if you read, and it's in a copy of it in my book, uh, the original uh, uh, issue of Business Week that uh, d- described the selection of the code it showed pictures of all the seven finalist codes and our code, and you can see it's the same as the one they picked. And they said they didn't pick the IBM code, but they picked this one, and it's exactly the same as our code with one itty-bitty little difference that the scanner can't even tell. And so everything we have working back at the ranch already worked. We were all set to go, and it was a complete success. And IBM loved it. They didn't fire me (laughs) for giving away that little thing. Because you understand the whole thing was put in the public domain. I mean, people didn't want to just randomly put um, that technology in their daily lives. So Paul had to do that. And then after... They were going to actually like sell it to the National Organization Association of Retail. He even had to do further work to convince them that like, you know what? You guys don't want the barcode to be a private invention. Okay, we will even go to the extent of putting it into the public domain. So we're not going to even invent. We're not going to even take credit for inventing the barcode just so that it could be so easy to implement that no one company owns it. And it makes sense. You know, when something is in the public domain, the world adapts it quicker. When something is an invention, then there's all these copycats that ruin the technology because now there's all these million barcodes that are not as good. And then we're all competing against each other instead of actually competing, instead of actually advancing the world. So that's what inventors truly want. Um, Long story short, They were able to get the barcode into the world and into the public domain, meaning the inventors of the barcode never actually got real credit for inventing it. And they never got paid for inventing it because you have to remember that at the time and even today, but let's say at the time they worked under these massive companies that would pay them salaries and bonuses and stuff like that. So if you're inventing something in, in, in the new iPhone, the iPhone 18, you're not actually, your name is not really on the patent. And even if it is, that doesn't really give you like a stake um, at every every time that technology is used. So that was really shocking to me because I thought that, you know, Paul is a millionaire, billionaire. Maybe he is, but not from inventing the barcode. In fact, I asked him, 
if he's rich. Let's let's go to that clip. My producers wrote a script, but I don't want to follow that script because I think we're yeah. going somewhere way better than that. I want to ask you, did the barcode make you rich? Are you rich because of the barcode? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I just... never got a dime for it. I mean, the only thing I got for it was I got promoted in IBM and I got to higher positions and so on and so forth. So that was all nice. Nobody ever made a dime on the barcode from a patent point of view or anything like that because the supermarket institute who they had the idea they needed this item identification, but they realized, you know, they didn't know 10 billion, but they knew there were, this, this is more than 50 years ago. They knew that it was going to be ubiquitous and they didn't want to make somebody richer than, of you know, the Bill Gates of the time and uh, so on and so forth. And so they said, either put it in the public domain or don't submit it. So one or two had patents on it, but the patents had expired, so they didn't matter. And we published everything. It's it's public. It has complete rights to the code. Nobody got a dime extra for the code. But, of course, IBM, as I mentioned, NCR had 95% of the business worldwide uh, in check stands uh, before we started. And uh, about uh, five, seven years later, uh, maybe eight or nine years later, uh, IBM had uh, the great majority of the percentage and NCR had a pittance and, uh, you know, the size of their company went way down. Uh, so, it, it, and that was because we had produced an entire system that, uh, you know, integrated other computer capabilities such as communications and file recording and automatic inventory management and marketing, uh, all kinds of marketing tricks and and everything uh, into a system. So it was a, a major system. So it started out just item identification and so on, but it became a major system. And, you know, how that works. You look at Amazon today and Jeff Bezos is the guy who really made out <laughs> because, uh, you know, how many scans are there of every item that you order uh, hmm. from uh, from Amazon? You know, it, it has to scan something just to decide what line to go down to, what box to go in and so on and so forth. Does it Does it make you happy to see what happened with the world and its adaptation of the barcode or does it make you angry doesn't oh, oh do no feel? no 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 it makes me very happy i i i kind of uh figured out growing up that one of the real opportunities of uh, uh of life as an engineer is to have a positive effect on society in some fashion just maybe even a little bit you know make some people happy and so on and so forth and i just happen to be lucky enough to be working on one that you know, uh, viral, I guess, as they would say, but, you know, I yes, mean, it's, 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 it's all over the world and it's everywhere. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really great. And I, I enjoy, I do the shopping for the family and, you know, I love, I go to the supermarket and I, <laughs> sometimes I use the self checkout, do all the little scans <laughs> and so on and so forth. And, uh, yeah, I feel really, uh, I feel really good about it. I think it is an opportunity when you do something that, if you can see how it does affect positively other people's lives. If you would just start over again and, and do it now and the barcode didn't exist, with all honesty, would you take that idea and go somewhere else and take a team and make a startup? Would you stay at IBM? How, how do you think today people should approach an idea? Because it's it's very political. Everything you said is very political. I mean, it, 
it's it's always it's not just the invention it's everyone wants to make money off of it and everyone wants oh, yeah. to own it yeah well um I, i'll answer your question in one way i think the way ibm was at the time it's, I think it's a different company today, you know, but the way it was at the time, and, and I haven't been associated with the company since 1984, so that's a long time. But the way it was at the time, I think it, it was very unique. You know, an interesting comment about that is that uh, I had a friend, a, a person who I had known at the time, uh, it wasn't really close to him, uh, named Bob Miller. And uh, he wrote a quote for me for the back of the book, and he read the book. and he said that it, it it hit him that the way IBM operated at that particular point in time and the way that I fit into it and was able to manage my way around it to the different levels and so on of uh, management, of sales, of engineering, of manufacturing, uh, and even politics, uh, it, it it was a real story for how to make a success out of a new startup kind of thing uh, like a startup inside a big business. And I think that, and he thought that the fact that I was in IBM, it, it might've been the best way possible for the thing to become a success. I mean, I, I put together a story and I went to IBM. I asked him, for $300,000 the first year, a million dollars the second year, and three million the third year, and uh, don't bother me in between. And that's kind of what they did. And, you know, those are not big numbers uh, in terms of, you know, starting them in a new business. And uh, I, the, the first, I hired uh, six engineers and, uh, you know, two in communications. One was very good with data management, uh, you know, with coding and so on and so forth. I was a scanning guy and uh, so on. And that was all we needed. And uh, it, it was amazing. I, I, uh, I had a guy come uh, to my office, uh, well, to review the project. And he had just been appointed president of IBM. I'm sorry, president of the division I was in of IBM. And uh, he was uh, he, he was a big, tough guy. And people were, you know, they shook when he walked around, not because he was uh, so heavy, which he was, but because he was so tough. And uh, he came down and he said, he came in our laboratory and we had the scanner set up in there on it in a check stand. Uh, or we were just starting to build it. And he said, wait a minute now, you're going to grab, a pack of cigarettes with a barcode on it or a, rag, a little box of Wrigley's gum or something, and you're going to pull it across the check stand at 100 inches a second, which is very fast, fast as your hand can move. And you might be spinning it, and it might be off the check stand an inch or two. So depth of focus is a big problem. And you're going to then send that image back. You're going to decode it. You're going to send it back to a computer. You're going to look up the price, the item, all that kind of stuff. You're going to change the inventory. You're going to send it back to this uh, check stand and print out, uh, you know, on a on a, a, a register tape what it was that was bought, what the price of it was, and you're going to do that for ten check stands doing it can tell. He said that's the most preposterous idea I've ever heard, and he said, but you guys have a good reputation, and uh, you know. I'm going to go away for a year because I know if I reviewed this thing regularly, I'd kill it. 
I won't touch you for one year. I won't do anything for one year, but I'm coming back here in a year and it better work or your desk is going to be in the parking lot. Oh my okay. gosh. He the left. Pressure. Yeah, he left. And uh, he came back one year to the date. He didn't miss it by even a day. And he walked in and he we had a item there and he threw it across the check stand uh, as fast as he could, spinning, and it read it. And he just he just looked around, he rolled his eyes. And then he got down on his hands and knees and opened up the box underneath it to see if we didn't have some skinny little engineer folded up in there, you know, putting the answer. And he was kidding. And he said, well, I'll be. And then, you know, I can't repeat the rest of it. And uh, that was it. Uh, you know, we made it. And, you know, I don't know how many places will let you do that. You know, <laughs> they go away right. for a year. And, uh, it, and we had it working. And uh, so. And, and after that, I mean, he was extremely supportive, very, very supportive. So, I mean, we had lots of other problems of a political and social nature, you know, taking the price off items, uh, uh, putting a laser in the scanner, which is how we read the thing uh, with, uh, you know, people were afraid of lasers. They were using them to shoot down airplanes, as some senator said. He introduced legislation into the government that we couldn't use them in supermarkets because they were shooting airplanes down with them. You know, he didn't understand the difference between a little one and a big one and so on. Wow. Wow. So basically the challenges, I mean, they were, there were plenty of challenges as in any new invention, any, any sort of, uh, change society is always afraid of change that's what i'm realizing we're afraid of what we don't know we're afraid of anything that feels new until yeah, so somehow true. it becomes a daily part of our lives right so now right. I, I was reading about your your upcoming book which we'll talk about in a second and you know the forward basically said when a technology becomes so good we don't even realize it anymore we don't realize the barcodes we don't we don't even notice them because it it, it became it becomes integrated in our daily lives that's but that right. took so many years. So going back again to, to day one or day hundred or day thousand, what what was the challenge that you really remember was personal to you, right? Like you were more on the scanning side, but what was something that you really to this day remember that people don't know about? Yeah, well, uh, one of them on the social side for sure uh, was uh, our first store opening. I sent my very best engineer up to the store open to make sure it would open. It was uh, giant. Uh, foods in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, uh, just outside Washington, D.C. And uh, he went there and, uh, you know, uh, he called me. First thing, I'm sitting by the phone just waiting, you know, okay. And uh, I said, Alex, is it, is it work? He says, no, they couldn't even open the store. What? How is that possible? I even had the controller duplexed. Everything was duplexed. He said, well, the pickets are outside. They won't let anybody enter the store. The union is uh, is blocking them. And, uh, well, because the prices are not going to be on the items. And they still were, but they weren't. They were going to take them off. So that, uh, you know, I hadn't expected that. And uh, that hmm. I, I ended up becoming kind of a uh, uh, a. <clears throat> A person that uh, is a lobbyist, you know, I had to visit uh, 18 states passed laws against it. I, I had to go here, there and everywhere. I remember going to Montana and talking to the committee that was going to decide on it. And frankly, they were very receptive. And when you 
covered the gory details of the thing, uh, they said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll recommend that the legislature pass it. It all kind of comes down to a little story in, uh, in our first test store, which was in Montreal, Quebec. And uh, I went up there and uh, was watching the store operate. Uh, this is uh, even before any stores were operating in the United States. It was a test store, so it didn't really count, but they were scanning. And uh, there was an executive from the Canadian government in the store. And he stopped uh, an elderly lady who was walking out the store with out of the store with a cane and a bag of groceries. And he said, are you really upset that uh, the system is here and the price isn't on the items? And I could hear the little lady because I was standing right next to her. And she said, oh, no, hey, I, I really like this uh, because before I never knew what I paid for an item because you just got a slip that just said 59 cents, 39 cents, 29 cents, whatever. And, you know, you didn't know what it was. Everything was just, you know, there, there were no description of what you had bought. It was just a, a, a number is all you got, just the number. And she said, now, look at this. And she pulled out her checkout slip, and it showed, you know, Wheaties, this price, and whatever. And she said, now, I walk down the street, and I take my slip, and I can compare the price with what the store down the street is charging for the same item. And I get the uh, price shop. I could never do that before. And besides the prices on the, uh, you know, the, the, the shelf, and uh, that was wow. good enough for me anyway. And, you know, we never heard any more problems from the Canadian government. But 18 <laughs> states did pass laws against it in, in the United States, but they, they petered out after a year or two. You know, California's law said that if you had a scanner, then you had to put the price on the item. But if you didn't, you didn't. And but they wrote the law so that it would expire automatically in a year uh, if nobody objected. And there were no basic objections at the end of a year. So the, the law just crumbled and fell away. But I didn't expect all of that. Of course, Paul. Wow, it, it's so fascinating, and I'll tell you why. It, it's because me personally, and in, in my generation, I, I can't imagine living a life where things were different. And I walk into a grocery store, I scan the barcode with my iPhone. It instantly tells me the calories of a, of a product, what it has, its recommendations. I can price compare. I can go on Amazon, scan the barcode, and see if I should get that on Amazon instead. I'm literally in the cockpit of full control as a consumer. And to think back that the challenges were so significantly different that we were even debating implementing a technology is crazy. And I do have to tell you, it's a question, actually. Do you think putting it in the public domain of some sort made it that it was for the good of society rather than becoming more like a vaccine where only one company owns it and then it becomes more of a controversial conversation? Do you think the reason why it was so well adapted was because not one necessarily one company owned the rights to it and the royalties to it? Domain. Uh, you know, all those things that you said about it uh, are, are true. Uh, you know, one company wasn't just pushing it. I mean, look at Apple and the iPhone. There are a few knockoffs and so on. But in this case, it's very efficient that there not be knockoffs. You know, it's very efficient that the same code that, you know, uh, you scan in China and India and South Africa is the one you scan in the United States and that it has one number and 
people manufacture uh, post cereals can send it everywhere. And, you know, uh, now there, there is a, of course, you know, if you were a purist, you might say, well, there's a country code on the front of the code. There is, but everything looks the same. And if you're in that country, that's the way your, your computer works. But, but the code is the same. And, you know, the, there was an immense uh, amount of work that went into finding out how to put the bars, how uh, to encode the bars and what the relationship is. And I should mention that the last of... Uh, the appendix in the book, I put a 40 page appendix in the book, which tells for the guru readers that are mathematicians and physicists and engineers that want to get all that story, they can read the appendix because I want the rest of the book to be readable by everybody who isn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, a mathematician doing differential equations. But all of that is in there. And it was very, very important to put that in, and it, it took a lot of analysis to do it. And that's another reason why it was good that a company like IBM did it. And I had to work pretty hard to get IBM to support all that, knowing they weren't going to get any patent on this thing, and uh, that whatever rights they had to it, they're going to have to share with everybody. And they just have to build the best product if they want to have the most sales. And that's fair. And, and I think that's good. I think I think it's wonderful that they did that. And I should mention that the National Retail Merchants Association used our same code, but in magnetic form on a magnetic stripe. And, uh, you know, the world has changed now as the uh, big stores are dying out and COVID has come and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, a decade ago, uh, if you went to a Macy's store, you know, our code, the exact same code, but it's not visible to your eye because it's magnetic on a little stripe on a piece of paper, just like the one on your credit card. Uh, and that's what they scanned. And that's what did all their inventory control. And they were very successful with that for 40 years. And as I said, it's now they're finding wow. that they can do more with just the plain optical barcode. So they're probably most of them are going back to that. But I do think it was a great thing for society that it wasn't a patent. If you guys hate ASMR, I apologize. We're, we're keeping these ASMR takes very short. But the point of the story is that that's the barcode. Barcode is really interesting. I hope next time you go to the supermarket and you're looking at it, you really take the time to see what a true miracle it was to create something like this in 1950 something 1952 like in that time time frame um and how it's been around for so long and now we use qr codes um and this this is not really a conversation about ai and um and codes barcodes are simple useful integrated in our daily life and they're never going to go away i mean not anytime soon we can look at rfid or whatever other ways of scanning that we have but the goal is an invention has to be simple it has to work it has to be reliable and it has to be in the public domain supposedly if you want it to go mainstream uh, on another note i would love to speak about this is so random but i really want to cover it in today's episode um can we please cover the crazy thing happening about aliens, alien bodies found in Mexico. So, so like a few days ago, 
let's pull this up a few days ago these scientists had like a congress hearing of some sort in mexico where they went to to this hearing and they showcased the skeletons of alien bodies or corpses that they 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 found more than a thousand years ago i'll put them somewhere here um and the point of this is it's really interesting because a lot of people don't know this i've looked at the i've looked at the research and i've looked at the evidence and there's a very high chance that this is completely fabricated either that person fabricated it or someone fabricated it and sold it to that person because all of us i mean we're we always chase cloud in a way even scientists want to be the first to invent something or the first to find out about something to the extent that we'll do crazy things and before i go further into why the this alien corpse is most likely fake or fabricated i hope it's not but i know it is unfortunately based on what we know so far you know you have to go back um to the fiji mermaid where back in the 1800s um there was this museum in new york that showcased you know this mermaid that was half human half fish and at the time people couldn't travel there was no cell phones there was no technology there was no internet um no spread knowledge to this extent so they really a lot of people thought it was a mermaid until it wasn't it was basically just a random fisherman who sewed half a skeleton of a monkey with and then the other half was a fish and sold it to american fishermen like oh this is a mermaid body so the goal of the story is we've always done this we always want to be fascinated and i don't know if this is how we're going to find alien corpses and we'll speak about this in future uh episodes but basically the the congress hearing in mexico was much better than the ones in the u.s because it wasn't just like oh trust me there's aliens we know of them but i can't say anything it was like hey we have proof here's the body um and it's really cool because this body was preserved in this white substance that preserves it and supposedly it's over a thousand years old this creature of some sort um a deep analysis of its dna was run not independently may i add just by these scientists and 30 percent of its dna i don't know what's this 30 percent of its dna is actually unknown meaning that it, it's not anything we recognize which could mean that you know it's it's real um it's tridactyl its feet and hands are tridactyl which means that it has like three fingers and three toes um interesting its skull um shape structure is really interesting but it's not until we can somehow get independent researchers to do their thing to actually verify if this is real or not i mean for all we we know it could be some random scientist of some sort that brought turtle bones bird bones and just put it together into what looks like an alien to us but it could be fabricated um and that's the end of today's episode so today we've learned about barcodes their politics we had an amazing conversation with paul McEnroe, the father the inventor of the barcode uh i took you back on a trip to 1950 something and we basically um talked about this random alien body corpse that was found in the congress hearing in mexico 
And with that, I'm going to wrap today's episode. Thank you so much for sticking around. Remember that none of this is factual until proven to be factual. So we just kind of speculated on some of the subjects that were discussed today. You can follow me on Instagram at Pierre Subeh, P-I-E-R-R-E-S-U-B-E-E-H, S-U-B-E-H. Uh, and then please try to like subscribe or follow to this podcast wherever you're listening to. Don't leave me a review yet because it's too early to give me a true judgment of my work. Let's do this a few more episodes before you leave me a review. And I'll see you soon. Thanks for stopping by. Enjoy your day. Thanks for watching the podcast by Pierre Subby. We hope to see you again very soon. For now, remember to feed your chickens.